subtitle for today's message is The Five Solas of the Protestant Reformation. And this is a message that is seeking to ask the question, answer the question, why aren't we Roman Catholic? I, I, I think if we were to, to take a survey, uh, perhaps among um, people in your community or, or across the whole state or the nation, you would find that many people... Uh, belong to a certain religion because that's the religion they were born into and, and that's, that's just the way it was for them. You will, you will find many Christians, many Catholics, do not hold to their faith because of conviction but because of convenience. So this message is seeking to respond to that. Mission drift. Anyone here know what mission drift is? Anyone, does anyone here not know what mission drift is? You can raise your hand. Okay. Mission drift is a phenomenon where within an organization, over time, its stated goals subtly shift. Maybe, a, maybe an organization, maybe a ministerial organization uh, origin, originally begins to uh, to be dedicated to the spread of the gospel, but over time, they could get involved in politics. They could in, they could get involved in selling merchandise and books. That's mission drift. And what makes mission drift challenging is that it doesn't happen all at once. It's subtle. It happens bit by bit, little by little over long periods of time. Attitudes and priorities slowly change. Exceptions are made. Parameters are modified. Goalposts are moved. Standards and protocols are reorganized. And eventually you have an entirely, though, they, though it looks the same on the, on the outside, on the external, eventually you have an entirely different organization and an entirely different entity than what it once was. And this is what happened with the Roman Catholic church, especially by the time of the Protestant Reformation at the turn of the 16th century. If you have ever wondered when exactly did the Orthodox Church become the Roman Catholic Church as we know it, it, it didn't happen in one instance. It didn't happen overnight, but rather over centuries in a repeated pattern of mission drift, theological mutation, and ecclesiastical compromise. The Protestant Reformation then was a recovery movement where God raised up and he used men, hundreds of men and women too, over multiple decades. And actually, if you include the, uh, the precursors or the forerunners to the Reformation, like the Weldensians in the 12th century, and John Wycliffe and John Huss about a hundred years or so before the Protestant Reformation. This is a centuries-long movement. And in this movement, the clarity of the gospel was recovered because it had been nigh on lost. The five solas emphasize the heart of that rediscovery. Now, the word sola means alone. 
and adding alone to each of these categories, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. This shows where the battle was waged because the addition of of alone and how that affects the doctrine is where the sparks fly as orthodoxy and erroneous tradition conflicts with each other. The solas cast a spotlight on where the Roman Catholic Church had strayed and had erred with respect to Scripture and the definition of grace and the efficacy and sufficiency of faith and the agency of Christ. The solas showed where the dividing lines were between biblical faith and dubious religion. The five solas are, in in no particular order, if you go on YouTube and want to research this, you'll find them uh, arrayed in, in different orders. Generally, the first is sola scriptura, and then sola gratia, sola fide, that's Latin for faith, solus Christus, and sola Deo Gloria. Let's jump into the first one. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. By the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had long established the, what is called the magisterium. The magisterium. That is the teaching rule and practice of the popes and the bishops. The Catholic Church Catechism, which I will refer to as CCC henceforth. And by the way, a lot of this was gotten from CARM.org, C-A-R-M.org. That is a treasure trove of apologetical nuggets. CCC Section 85 says, The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, and, and listen to this bifurcation, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition. An authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition. There is an assertion that the Word of God exists in tradition. This has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this manner is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, when the magisterium speaks, Jesus is speaking. Whether they are interpreting and enforcing scripture or tradition, they are on par with each other. Now, tradition, that is a technical term to describe what was allegedly apostolic instruction that had been personally handed down by Jesus to the apostles and by, by the apostles, from the apostles then to the early church. Yet, uh, alleging that the apostles handed it down, this instruction cannot be found in the writings of the apostles. Do you know what we call the writings of the apostles? The New Testament. So things that the apostles allegedly taught, but they didn't write a lick about. That is tradition. 
It had the label of authorized instruction, but could not be traced back to the authorized writings of the authorized writers. Now, let me ask you a question. Where have we heard this before? Those of you who have been here for about three years, will, or uh, maybe three and a half by now, will remember when uh, Pastor Carl Heitman preached from Mark chapter 7. And he addressed the tradition of the elders. It's, it's ironic. It's the same word, tradition. The tradition of the elders was, was a body of teaching and instruction that the Pharisees and the scribes upheld, had been handed down personally by Moses, yet it's nowhere written or recorded in the books of Moses. That is precisely the same thing as the Roman Catholic Church's tradition. And you can find this uh, detailed. I don't have time to read through it, but Mark 7, 3 to 13. What the Roman Catholic Church did with the tradition of the magisterium is precisely what the Pharisees and the scribes did with the, with, with the tradition of the elders. They took, and, and I'm drawing this straight from Mark 7, they took the teachings of men, things which God did not say, and then they had said this is on par with Scripture, this, this is authorized, and then proceeded to use them to countermand, contradict, and override Scripture. They used what God didn't say to cross out and to override what he actually did say. That is what the Pharisees and the scribes did with tradition. This is what Roman, the Roman Catholic Church has done with tradition. I'm going to quote from Luther in a little bit. But he says in his famous Here I Stand speech, he says, it is well known. And if, the, and if it wasn't well known, if he was speaking out of his hat, the, he would have easily been refuted on the spot. He said, it is well known that, the, that, that uh, popes and bishops have erred and contradicted themselves. He said that. So in response to this, to to tradition being elevated to the point of being on par with Scripture and then in practice actually being elevated above Scripture so that Scripture is subservient to the tradition, the Reformers rediscovered what, and this isn't their invention, they are merely rediscovering what the Scripture says about itself. And let me read to you a few passages. Psalm 19, 7-10. The law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect meaning it's complete. It's not lacking anything. I can set out to accomplish a task, maybe change some nuts or bolts on, a, on an appliance or something, and I can find myself inadequate or to do, the, to do the, that task or uh, because I, I'm lacking something. Most likely it's the 10 millimeter socket. But I can find myself easily inadequate and insufficient for a task at hand. The scripture is not like that in the slightest bit. 
The scriptures don't lack anything. They're not missing anything. And that means that they don't need councils. They don't need magisteriums. Uh, Or in today, the scripture does not need psychology or the science to come in and to make up for some apparent lack. Because there is no lack. The scripture is by itself complete and suitable and fully adequate to perform and accomplish that which it is given to do. And Dom over here is asking Aaron, what is it supposed to do? And I'm glad Dom has asked that. And let's look at the rest of Psalm 19. The rest of the rest of that first part of verse seven says it, it restores the soul. And look at the end of verse 7. It it instructs, teaches, and makes even simple minds wise. Verse 8. It encourages and it gives grounds for joy. You know the sinner has joy when his conscience is made clean. The dying man has joy when he knows he has life waiting for him on the other side. Verse 8 continues, it enlightens. The scripture reveals truth, precious truth. Verse 9, it is given so that it may endure forever. Scripture will never be overruled by men or governments. It's never needing to be updated Windows needs to be updated, but not Scripture. Scripture never needs a patch. Scripture never needs to be supplemented with additional revelation. The Scriptures, like fine gold, says Psalm 19, shines brightly. And they shine today just as brightly, just as radiantly as when they were written millennia ago. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for a couple things. Right? Most things. All things. Scripture alone has... and, and, And bear in mind... Paul said, all scripture, you know, you may not see it at, at first glance, but even even the boring bits, the genealogies, the, the geography, the maps, the tedious stuff, the, the names, those have value. All scripture is inspired and scripture and scripture alone has that qualification as being that which is breathed out by God. Councils. And men may not claim to be God-breathed. They can claim to agree with what God has already breathed out. But what they produce is not God-breathed. They cannot claim that. They cannot claim their interpretations to be inspired. Scripture alone bears that qualification and it stands in a class of its own with no equal. And what, what God has done effectively is, is given us a body of truth that says, I am exclusive. I, I stand in a category all by myself and not one person, not one council, not one group, not any other thing 
can say that they are my equal. Nothing can usurp me. Nothing can overrule me. Nothing can override or contradict me. That is in essence. That is the, the heart of what Scripture says about itself. And let me read to you what, what uh, a quote from Luther's infamous uh, defense of himself at the Diet of Worms. He says, unless I am convinced, and this is the heart of Sola Scriptura, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clean, clear conscience, for I do not trust in the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. That is the heart of Sola Scriptura. Now, as a side note, I want to clarify that Sola Scriptura does not nullify church traditions, nor does it say that we should never turn to extra-biblical sources and helps. And I'm not contradicting myself. In fact, I I would wager that many of you have extra-biblical helps with you today, right now. Does anyone have several pages of maps at the end of your Bible? Or an index? Or a concordance? These are things that are not God-breathed, yet are nevertheless helpful. Instrumentative. Traditions and helps. Even Christian books written by theologians and pastors Books and charts and maps may serve, may, keyword may, not all helps are useful, but they may serve to help clarify something in Scripture. And when they do that, when they agree with Scripture, when they, when they serve the Scripture and explain or elaborate merely what Scripture has already said, then these things, these helps, these resources, these Christian books are totally fine and they are totally appropriate and they are good and profitable. Where's the problem then, Pastor? Well, the problem arises when traditions and helps are not seen as something subservient to the Scriptures, but when they are seen as as being some, something equal or even something superior to the Scriptures. And when they are elevated to a point where they are adding something that is additional revelation, speaking where Scripture has not clearly spoken, or or the dead giveaway is when they say or teach something against Scripture. I, I hope you can see the difference between the two. Sola Scriptura says all these helps, all these resources are subject and subservient to the Scripture. They should not exceed nor contradict Scripture. That is sola scriptura. The second sola, again, these are in no particular order. These all, these all developed over, over the decades of the Reformation. The second sola is sola gratia, saved by grace alone. 
which is what Paul clearly says in Ephesians 2.8. It is by grace and nothing else you could, you could provide. You could write in a little, little paragraph, in a little parenthesis, and nothing else or alone. It is by grace alone you have been saved. How could the Roman Catholic Church get this wrong? Well, they have. And they've done it in two ways. They've redefined what grace is. CCC, the Catechism, section 2023, yes, it is a rather long document, says this, sanctifying grace is the gratuitous gift of his life. Now, just bear in mind, it says here that it is a gratuitous gift, and we'll we'll see for a second it's not really because you you earn it, but sanctifying grace is the gratuitous gift of his life. That's what grace is. It is, it is a, a portion of God's life. It is, es, it is life essence that God makes to us. It is infused by the Holy Spirit into the soul to heal it of sin and, and to sanctify it. Did everyone get that? According to the Roman Catholic Church, grace is not a basis or grounds for which God does this or does that. It's not an inclination. It's not charity. It is a thing. It has an essence. It is life. It is spiritual life and holiness that God imparts to the individual. I said there was a second way that they get this wrong. Not only do they redefine grace, but they re- and redefine what it is, but they redefine the basis on which it is given. And this is this is sadly ironic, considering what what grace means. CCC 2010, moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity. We can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification. And then I skip a line because it's unnecessary. And for the attainment of eternal life. We can merit for ourselves and for others. Mark that too. The graces needed for our sanctification and for the attainment of eternal life. Life. Some way down the document, CCC 2027, moved by ourself, or moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life. Now, I just want you to uh, open up a, a file, a memo in your mind. And, and where it says we can merit for ourselves and for others, right on that little sticky pad, that this is this is going to uh, be the basis for the doctrine known as the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit is the is is the heavenly bank account upon which indulgences will make withdrawals from and then be applied towards the individual. Remember that part later when we address Solus Christus. 
Now put that sticky mo note like over here somewhere in your mind. We'll come back to it later. So grace is some grace is a thing. It's not a basis. It is a thing I I that is given to us because we do something to earn it. Grace has the very substance, the very thing that grace is has been redefined and the way in which grace is given, the grounds on which grace is given have been redefined. This is not what scripture or even a basic dictionary says grace is. Grace by definition is unmerited. And, and uh, there's a verse I have a little later uh, from I think Galatians where Paul says if if if, if it's owed it ceases to be grace. Grace is unmerited, unearned favor. It is, by definition, charity. It is not something that is owed. It can be given or it can be withheld freely. If there's any compulsion or, or obligation to give it, it ceases to be grace. And if it's merited in any way, it ceases to be grace in any category of the term. What sola gratia stresses is this. We cannot earn or merit God's kindness. We can't do something to change his inclination towards us. We can't incline him to change his disposition towards us from where it is naturally because of our sin by offering him trinket tokens of worship through ceremonies and rituals. That is what Roman Catholic grace allegedly does. And that's what the pagans did. You think of, think of those 450 prophets of Baal cutting themselves and dancing around an altar, trying to entice their false god into action. In, They're trying to entice him and goad him into benevolence. The biblical God is not like that. He is not enticed to do anything. God is not goaded into benevolence. The Bible says he is angry with the wicked every day. And even the best offerings of even the most religious people are like filthy rags. Because everything sinful people do is marred by their sin. And this is the crux of the issue. If any sinner is to be forgiven, if, if the very best and the most religious thing that the most religious person can do is received as a filthy, stinking rag, then if any sinner is to be forgiven and granted new life and granted entry into heaven and to enjoy the blissful presence of God forever, no longer as an enemy, but as a friend and as a father, it must, it absolutely must come from a free, sovereign act of God's favor. And when I say it must be a free act, it must be so 
because God must have chosen to do so completely free of any influence from the sinner. If God is obligated or inclined from an outside force to show grace, it's no longer Him choosing to be gracious. He doesn't forgive the sinner because of anything the sinner has brought or could ever bring to the table. God has chosen to forgive the sinner because God has chosen to be gracious. He doesn't owe forgiveness. He doesn't owe pardon because if it was owed, then pardon, then being pardoned is a wage that, has, that is now due and no longer something that is graciously given. And this is something that I see when people have a problem with the doctrine of election. I, I think they are struggling with sola gratia as well as a few other doctrines. If God, and they say, if God has saved me, if God has saved one sinner, then he owes it to save another sinner. It, it is wrong for God to freely save one and bestow grace to one, but to withhold grace to another. If he saves one, he owes it to the other to have the same chance. You are making a presumption or the person in that situation who is who is struggling with that. They are presuming on God's grace. They are presuming grace to be owed where it is not owed. If it is owed, grace has been nullified. If grace that is owed is not grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, what's that? That is the faith he just mentioned. That faith is not of yourselves. It didn't originate with you. It had to be given to you. It, the faith that saves you, is the gift of God. You didn't give that faith that saves you as a result of works. Why? Why did God do it that way? So that, Paul says, no one may boast. So God may boast about his grace. And so no one may boast in saying, ha, 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 I did, I did this religious thing and God had to give me grace. there is any way to merit being saved, the one who, do, who does so now has something to boast about. Even if it's 1%. Even if it's 1% of 1%. What's the smallest denomination, like a micron or a picron? Or a, if it is an infinitesimally small amount that someone is able to save for themselves, they, at the end of the day, they have something to boast about. If there was something in them that warranted it, Paul says there's absolutely nothing. God saves men and women on the basis of him being gracious so that he can be the one to do the boasting, and rightfully so, not them. God gets the credit for anybody that gets saved because he is completely responsible for their salvation. So God provides salvation entirely uh, to sinners entirely because he chooses to be gracious to them. Now then, that that raises a question. 
how do they receive it? Right? How, how do they appropriate it? How do they take it, get their hands on it, and how do they make it their own, and how do they have it applied to them? Well, sola fide answers that question. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola fide asserts that salvation is appropriated by the sinner through faith alone. But we can use another word, uh, and it's appropriate for, for, the, um, for the quotes I have from Karm. A sinner is justified. He is declared righteous on the basis of faith or by means of faith alone. He's not justified because of anything he does. It's not 99% faith and 1%, you know, cleaning himself up, getting himself right before God. It is through faith and faith alone. We just read Ephesians 2.8. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith alone is the vehicle through which our justification is received and applied. Now, Rome says something else. Rome says in uh, CCC section 2020, justification is granted through baptism. Thought I was going to say faith, didn't you? Baptism. And even then, this is only the initial imputation of grace. I mean, if 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 um, if a child is baptized in the Roman Catholic Church and then unfortunately perishes in their assessment, he's justified. He's good. But if that little baby grows up and sins, heaven forbid, he needs further justification because he is now he has been living in an unjust way. And so he needs further justification. He needs further imputations of grace which, which are imputed through confirmation, the Eucharist, or also called the Mass, acts of penance, the anointing of the sick, also called extreme unction, holy orders, that's being a priest. If, if, if you become a priest, that's like a million points, million sacrament points, and matrimony, CCC 1210 says, quote, the seven sacraments touch all the stages and all the important moments of Christian life. They give birth and increase healing and mission to the Christian's life of faith. Now, I want you to remember, in Rome's eyes, by Rome's definition, grace, it's not why God does this or God does that. Grace is the essence of God's life and holiness that God gives you. And in Rome's eyes, grace is the balm of salvation. And grace is appropriated not through faith, but through sacraments. We could also say it through works, because sacraments are things you do. Receiving grace through works or being justified, since grace is what justifies you, 
through works. It's at this point I want to draw upon a few words from the human authority who tried to to attain his justification through works. Who do you think that is? Someone tell me. Paul, thank you. Five points to House Perry. Romans 3.24, the the Reformed Justification Through Works guy, says we are justified as a gift by his grace. Nothing about baptism. Nothing about works or about any, any sacrament or anything we do. We are justified as a gift by his grace. Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith. And here he's even more specific, apart from the works of the law. Romans 4.3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, that is the verbal form of of faith. Abraham faithed in God. And, And it, his faith, his belief, was credited to him as righteousness. Nothing about baptism, nothing about works, nothing about law-keeping. And Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 4 is this is like 400 years before the law came. And yet, the patriarch of God's people was, was attributed or counted as righteous by his faith long before works ever came on the scene. Romans 4.4 To the one who does not work. And that word, you, you, you could put in parentheses all the sacraments, all the Roman Catholic sacraments, and all the, all the Protestant sacraments too. Regular attendance, regular tithing, putting your kids to Awana, all the things good Baptists do, bringing food to a potluck. bringing that delicious uh, potato salad with the walnuts in it that the pastor likes. To the one who does not work, but believes in him, who, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Paul specifically says, it's the guy who's not working, and believe, and, and, but believes. That's the guy who goes home justified. The guy who believes and somewhere includes some kind of works with his belief, he does not go home justified. Romans 5.5 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and confessing with your mouth is not a work it is merely uh, uh, the mouth is the wellspring for the heart so what's coming out of the mouth is merely what is already in the heart Romans eleven six. it is by grace if and here's that here's that um, oh I said it was I said it was in Galatians didn't I know it's this one if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works I want to say that again. If it is by grace, 
it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If grace is owed, it's not grace. If grace is earned or merited, it's not grace. If it's obligated, it's not grace. Galatians 2.16 A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we who have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. If I told you, Paul, it was very close to his heart to make it very clear. You don't get you don't get right with God. You don't get eternal life. You don't get peace. By doing stuff. It is given graciously and it is appropriated. It is received. You get your hands on it on the, through faith and faith alone. Now, James will come along and he'll tell us that the faith that saves you is not alone. It will, it will produce and it will result in works. But the faith that, act, that saves you, it saves you by itself. Now, the Council of Trent, this, this is just, do what you, do what you want with this. It, 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 no, I take that back. If you're ever inclined to think that Rome is peaceful towards us, you know, because John the Paul II, he was a nice guy. Ratzinger, not so much. Paul Francis, interesting. If you're ever inclined, because of Rome's somewhat nice demeanor, friendly demeanor, accepting and tolerating demeanor for the last 50 years or so, the Council of Trent, which was Rome's response to the Protestant Reformation, said this in Canon 9, and this has never been retracted. This is still Rome's official statement, regardless of what the current pope says or does. This is still Rome's official position towards Protestants to this day. If anyone, this is Canon 9, Council of Trent, if anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified, let him be anathema, which is old world for cursed or condemned. I mean, they, they may be nice to you, but their doctrine says from their highest authority, if you say what the Bible says, you are saved on the basis of faith alone, you are to be condemned, you are to be cursed, you are to be spit upon. Fourth, fourth banner, the fourth pillar of the Protestant Reformation is Solus Christus. Solus Christus. Why is it not sola? Well, the other, all the other words are, are feminine in Latin. This is, Christus is masculine. Gender matters. Grace. We said grace is the basis of salvation. God gives it freely to whom he wills because he is gracious. 
faith is the means of appropriating or receiving salvation. But, but who or what is the agent of salvation? Who accomplishes it? Who, who does the work? Who does the heavy lifting? The Bible unapologetically asserts that it is Christ and it is Christ alone who accomplishes this mighty task. He alone is the mediator and high priest between holy God and sinful man. He and he alone bridges that gap and closes that divide. He accomplished that feat by himself, and he did so with no help, no assistance, no collaborator. Collaborator. And what this means is that his mother is not a co-mediator. And there is no, what I referred to earlier, this means there is no treasury of merit. There is no heavenly bank account that Christ and Mary and the apostles and all the saints and all those who really did a good job at being good people have out of their surplus of righteous deeds been making deposits so that people down the road like you and me who are not so excelling at being good people need to withdraw, get loans from them. That, that doctrine of a treasury of merit that popes may dip into and dispense as a man might dip a bucket into water into a well and dispense water, that doctrine is bogus. The accomplishment of your redemption and the bearing of your sins and the possession of a perfect righteousness that could be imputed to you and me since we lacked one was a burden he and he alone took upon himself and bore. I can't emphasize this enough. This was a work that he, that Christ alone completed. Now, where does the Bible assert these claims? How much time do we have? When, when do I have to stop? Because I got verses for this. Your, your temp, no, okay, okay. Let me give you a couple. First Timothy two five, there is one God and say it, one mediator, also between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. John fourteen six, I. Well, I mean, don't look at singular. I am the way. Not not we are. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And you could provide in parentheses, and me alone. Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Mary is a name given under heaven, but that's, that's not in the list, is it? Christ alone bore the sins of his people. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ, I'll add alone for emphasis, Christ alone also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he alone 
might bring us to God. He and he alone was perfectly righteous and without sin among men. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Last time I checked, he is the only one who has that qualification, the sinless one. He alone was qualified to take the place of sinners. He alone among men possessed the quality of an infinite life so that by the one-time offering of himself, he might in one moment intercede for all the sins of his people throughout all time and, and completely expunge all that sin. You ever wonder, how could Jesus pay for everybody's sins in such a short amount of time? Because he has an infinite quality of life. Because he's God. He's the only one who could do that. No one else, I, I hope you can see, no one else fits into those shoes. No one else can t- play, take that mantle and place it on themselves. Certainly not the Pope or Mohammed or Joseph Smith or, or even Moses. Let's use, let's use a good biblical name, not even Moses. I, I hope you can see... No prophet was ever, the people were never told to have faith in a prophet or to be in a prophet the way that we are told to be in Christ. Christ and Christ alone accomplished and provide salvation for his people. Now, Last point, let me give you the TLDR version of this before my screen turns red. If man's word was effective to save, I mean, think of those qualities that I read from Psalm 19. If man's word, if what was said about the Bible there could be said about man's word, man would get some glory, would he not? If what I said could restore the soul and make wise the simple, enlighten the eyes, and give joy, I'd have, I'd have reason to feel pretty good about what I say, wouldn't I? If, if man di- could do something to turn God's favor towards him, man would get some glory. If man could do something through which he might save himself and put his own hands on salvation, he would get some glory. And if he merited, if he did something, if he bore even an an iota of the burden that brought redemption, if he helped, if he was an assistant to Jesus Christ, in even the most infinitesimal amount, he would get some glory. And he would have something to boast about. But the truth is, man's word is not efficacious to save. Man cannot do something to turn God's favor Man cannot produce of himself faith. 
and thereby receive salvation. And man cannot merit in any capacity his own redemption from beginning to end, from the planning to the accomplishing to the applying. God has designed the gospel of Jesus Christ from start to finish to glorify himself, not man. This sola is all about giving God the credit rightly due to him for who he is and what he has done in the gospel. Now, as I conclude... I just want to reiterate that these solas were not tenets. They were not pillars that the reformers invented. They were blessed truths, biblical truths that had been rediscovered after being repressed and almost lost by almost a millennia of erroneous tradition. It is these tenets that frame the gospel. And may God continue to use these tenets as a clarion call to bring men and women to himself so that they can obtain the one true salvation that it, that's not found in anything they do. It's not found in, in any one person's work, but in Christ alone, not on the basis of deeds or merits, but on God's grace alone received not through traditions or ceremonies or works or vigils, but appropriated through faith alone, revealed not through magisteriums or councils or personal visions, but through the scriptures alone, also that God and God alone may receive the glory. May he continue to bring people to himself, to his gospel by means of these pillars. Let's pray. Lord, we we love the beauty and the clarity of your gospel. Thank you, Lord, for bringing it back to light. Thank you for raising up the individuals that you used. Men and women who had feet of clay and had many faults. And yet, you stood with them, you upheld them, and you preserved them so that through them you might preserve your blessed, beautiful, powerful gospel. Help us to truly appreciate this momentous day. Amen.